And I'm Yvonne Dagger. Let's get howling. Let's get howling. We're delighted to welcome award-winning writer Laura Grievies to our sixth podcast. Laura is a multi-award-winning author, journalist, and when she's not writing, you'll most likely find her at her day job in communications for an assistance dogs charity. I'm thrilled to welcome Laura. Welcome, Laura, and thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to speak with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, Pleasure. Laura, at a very young age, you were named Australian Young Journalist of the Year. That must have been quite an accomplishment. Do you remember what you wrote about and um, what merited such an honor? I do. That feels like another lifetime ago now. That was in 2001. Um, and I was working at the Advertiser newspaper, which is in Adelaide in South Australia, where I grew up. Um, and I was their very first youth affairs reporter. So I wrote exclusively about young people and youth issues. Um, it had never been done before in that newspaper. And in fact, I believe I might have been the first dedicated youth affairs reporter in Australia at that time. Um, so yeah, I was, I was very fortunate to be selected as young journalist of the year based, um, exclusively on the, the reporting that I had done about young people and the issues that affect them. It was very, you know, I was young then <laughs> I was 21. So it was very, um, issues that were very important to me as well at the time. Oh, isn't that wonderful? That's amazing. Very yeah, interesting. It, it was fantastic. You know, I got to go to Sydney, which is where I live now, but at the time was really much, which was very much the big smoke. Um, <laughs> you know, there was a fabulous kind of gala dinner and I got to meet all sorts of celebrities and it was very exciting. <laughs> Great fun at that age, particularly. It yes. is. Yeah, it so. is. And then to realise that at, at a young age um, of 21 yourself, to mm. be to to want to investigate and learn about um the issues with the young people um yeah. you know is it, that's that's really great it, it, to to know that you had that kind of interest and want to you know to definitely uh, well i had actually started out writing for newspapers when i was only 16 i was still in high school yeah. and um news corp who you know rupert murdoch's organization who who owns the New York Times and many other new uh very well known mastheads also owned the advertiser and he also owned um a, like a whole chain of kind of suburban newspapers mm -hmm. that were known okay. as the messenger and the messenger decided to make this youth newspaper it was called Y the letter Y um and they recruited this whole staff of student journalists so I was, yeah, 16 and I'd always had an interest in English and writing. In fact, I'd been writing, scribbling away at stories and poems literally since the age of about five or six. Um, and I, I did pretty well in my English classes at school and so I was selected to write for this this brand new um, experimental newspaper. And I really think if it hadn't been for that opportunity, 
which then led to a cadetship on the advertiser, which then led to the youth affairs reporting and and the kind of accolades for that. I, I may well not be on the path that I'm on today. So, you know, it, it's all worked so, out. <laughs> fantastic. Does it still exist? I mean, is, is it still an ongoing thing? Do you know? The youth newspaper is not, unfortunately. Oh, um, that's a shame. The advertiser is very much still up and running. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's In great. fact, it was really, it was very interesting too because when I was about 10, I saw my name in print for the very first time wow. in the advertiser randomly because um, it's actually, it's not a, a great story. I had a dog and he was run over and, and died oh. and the person that hit him just kept driving. They didn't stop. They just left him there on the road to pass away and as I say, I was 10, I was heartbroken, but beyond being heartbroken, I was furious, you know, in that, that indignant, that righteous anger that, that only children can have. And I felt powerless to, to express that. So I did really the only thing that I could think of doing, which was I wrote a letter to the editor of the advertiser newspaper expressing my very fervent belief that there's a special place in hell for people that harm animals um, and the editor yeah. of the not only published the letter, but rang me to say how moved she had been by my letter and, and the story that I had told about how much I love this little dog. So nice. it was really, looking back, it was really quite serendipitous in that, you know, I'd written about a dog in the paper where I would later start my career as a professional writer. Mm-hmm. And here we are uh, so many years later. <laughs> <laughs> And here you are, quite an accomplished author, I must say. Mm-hmm. Men, many of your books are written about dogs <laughs> that you just mentioned. In fact, you've described yourself as a proud, and quote, <laughs> proud, crazy dog lady. Mm-hmm. Um, you've written incredible dog journeys, dogs with jobs, the rescuers, Miracle Mutts, Extraordinary Old Dogs, A Dog's Best Friend, Amazing Aussie Aussie Dogs, and the children's book, Amazing Dogs with Amazing Jobs, which, by the way, you've included a whole chapter about my dog, uh, Dagger Dog Vinci, in. And um, I want to just say that, Laura, I am forever grateful to you for that really honestly forever grateful to you for that a whole chapter was devoted to dagger um and um you've always had a love for dogs um and i from what i could see and anna and i could see they're rescue dogs um can you tell um, us a little bit and our listeners a little bit about um what why you decided to write about dogs and specifically old dogs and dogs Mm -hmm. with jobs and all of that sort of thing. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you so much for your, your kind words about amazing dogs with amazing jobs and, and Dagger's chapter in it. I mean, honestly, the pleasure was all mine getting to know you and getting to know all about Dagger and and what an incredible, special, talented boy he was. Mm -hmm. And not to mention all the good work that, that he did and you, of course. His your, artwork. Your book, your book sold at every one of his workshops. Did it? Oh, <laughs> it did. So it did because I bought a whole bunch of them and and we sold them at his workshops. And so oh, really great. Wonderful. 
Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that support. Um, <laughs> but what started it all for me, as I mentioned, you know, technically what started it all was that letter to the editor about my sweet dog, Robbie, who unfortunately I didn't have for very long. Um, but then as I grew up and I worked on various newspapers and magazines in Australia and in the UK, I lived in London for about five years and, and did a lot of work over there too. While I was living in London, I started writing my first novel um, and it took me 11 years on and off, mostly off because I'm a terrible procrastinator, <laughs> to finish that book. And then um, I was very lucky that it was published by Penguin Random House here in wow. Australia, New Zealand. That book's called Be My Baby. It's a romantic comedy novel and it does have a, a supporting character of a beautiful little um, Boston Terrier. And then I wrote two more romantic comedy novels, both of which had a, a, a fairly um, significant supporting cast of canine characters. And so through that work, my editor at Penguin got to know my love for dogs. Um, and then she came to me one day and said, look, we want to do a nonfiction book of inspirational dog stories. Is that something you'd be interested in doing? And of course, I immediately said, uh, yes, please, <laughs> most definitely, because I do just adore dogs. Um, and so that first book was Incredible Dog Journeys, um, which was all about, as the name suggests, dogs that had gone on incredible journeys, mostly in the literal sense, they had gone from one place to another, but some of them were also in a more spiritual sense. You know, they had started in one place and, and experienced some kind of transformation or, or metamorphosis that took them somewhere quite different. And that book sold really well and I absolutely loved writing it. So then I pitched them another one and another one and another one. Um, <laughs> and now I have 11 books in total. Um, wow my name and and eight of them are are all about dogs that is wonderful. Um, so you know in regards to what made me decide on each theme it really varies um you know dogs with jobs was a bit of a no-brainer because I'm forever blown away and impressed by a dog's capacity to work with and for humans in in all mm -hmm. kinds of different roles and that's only you know, my wonder and amazement has only increased since I started uh, my my day job. I work for uh, Assistance Dogs Australia, which is a charity here that provides assistance dogs for people with physical disabilities, PTSD and autism. Wow. So dogs with Jobs was a wonderful exploration of that kind of work. Amazing Dogs with Amazing Jobs, which is the book that, that Dagger Dog Vinci features in, is is the kids' version of that. Um, and then there's the rescuers, which is about dogs that were rescued and then went on to rescue someone else, either literally or wow. spiritually again. You'll um, have to, you'll have, we'll have to uh, team up on that because as you know, I run the Animal Heroes Hall of Fame. Yeah. So you, you, you might be able to give us some names. <laughs> oh, most definitely. Absolutely. Um, and then Extraordinary Old Dogs, which is all about incredible seniors, was in inspired by one of my dogs, um, Tex. So he was what I call my soul dog. Um, mm -hmm. He passed away two years ago yesterday, actually. Oh, bless. Um, but he lived a wonderful life. He was 14. Um, he had a laundry list of, of medical issues, um, mm -hmm. which really should have like taken him much much earlier but he was a very tenacious stubborn <laughs> old man <laughs> just 
kept on keeping on. Yeah. Uh, that was inspired by by him and the fact that I was just forever astonished by what he could do despite all the challenges that he faced and and how loving and and special he remained. Mm. Um, So he actually wasn't a rescue dog. Um, He was a Nova Scotia duck tolling retriever. Um, And I also, oh, absolute stunners. I I miss them so much. Um, And I also had another one, Delilah, who also passed away. I remember Delilah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's almost been two years since we lost her as well. She had lymphoma, very sadly. And then I still have my third dog, Coco, who is a rescue. Um, Mm. She is a Border Collie Kelpie mix. Mm. Um, And I I always sort of tell the story of how we found each other. It was really quite serendipitous, which is something I just, I feel so intensely when it comes to dogs. You know, I think they choose us even when we go to a breeder and pick one out you know we think we're doing the choosing but we're not they're still choosing us um and that was very much the case with Coco she was a stray she'd been seen roaming around my local area for about five days and nobody could catch her <coughs> excuse me then she was finally picked up by the local dog catcher and taken up to our local RSPCA shelter a place that I had never been never had really any thought of going there but that same day I was at my vet's office with my other two dogs just having routine health checks and a woman came in with a box of kittens that she'd found abandoned on the side of the road she wasn't able to take them to the RSPCA herself so she was hoping that the vets would hold the kittens overnight it was quite late in the day and then someone could take them the next day and and the vets were saying well, we can't do it where, you know, there was one vet and one vet nurse. And so they, there was no one that could make the trip up there. I am terribly allergic to cats. I had <laughs> two dogs. So I had no business saying I'll do it. But of course I said, I'll do it. <laughs> As you do. Yeah. So I took these cats or kittens up to the shelter and I arrived at the exact same moment as the dog catcher who was bringing in this dog that they just picked up and she looked at me and I looked at her and I thought oh well that's my dog (laughs) there was something I just knew immediately I was certainly not looking for a third dog and in fact Coco uh, that wasn't her name then obviously they didn't know her name but they had called Audrey which doesn't suit her at all Um, (laughs) but they were very, they didn't have high hopes for her. She was very anxious. Being a Kelpie, she's a climber. She managed to scale the eight-foot fences of the shelter and escape twice. Wow. They come to the conclusion that she was too anxious and too neurotic to ever be able to be a pet, and they were going to euthanize her. And I said, no, absolutely not. Um, And I'm the kind of person who you know, I, I don't like confrontation. I, I don't make a pest of myself. I try to be accommodating, but I really was an annoyance. I became a thorn in their side. I was calling them and emailing them. I was writing them letters. I went right to the CEO of the RSPCA and said to him, I cannot believe that you would euthanize this perfectly healthy, beautiful dog. Um, And, you know, I can understand their policies. They can't I, I, I see where they're coming from. You know, they don't want to risk putting a dog out into the community that's so anxious it could potentially bite or yeah. it could escape from its home and, and be hit by a car or, or 
you know, I get where they're coming from, but I just, my dog Tex had anxiety and I'd managed that for years and years and I just knew that I could help her. So I had to literally get a special kind of dispensation from the senior management of the RSPCA. <laughs> um, <laughs> but they finally let me adopt her. And the funny thing was, I thought staff must be finding me so annoying. I bet they just hate me because I'm badgering them all the time. But then after the adoption was approved, they said, oh, we're so glad you did this. You know, we couldn't say it at the time, but we're so glad you made such a pest of yourself. Um, Yeah, so so Coco's been with us for about five years now. Um, We don't know her age, of course, exactly, but we think she's about 10. So she's going very grey, bless her, so... Oh, She's sweet. definitely getting there in years Aww. too. <laughs> and how is she now? Is she still the same um, way or has she calmed down? She, she, well, she has calmed down, but she is still definitely an anxious girl. Aww. She's on Prozac. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Um, and we know what her triggers are, so we try to minimise that as much as we can. You know, we, we've adjusted our environment and she's had lots of training as well. And, you know, she... She has little things. She hates bicycles and anything with wheels. So we know that if we're out walking and we see a bike approaching, we need to, you know, take her off into the bushes and (laughs) turn around, go the other way. (laughs) So we just do what we can, but but she's a very happy, sweet girl. And now I also have a a flat-coated retriever called Ferdinand. Yes, Ferdinand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he he wasn't a rescue. I did get him from a breeder, but he was – Oh, I hate to say this, but he was a like a a discount almost, which is a terrible thing to say. <laughs> but he had a problem with his jaw, and so they knew he couldn't be um, a show dog or or anything like that. So he came to us, and he is a giant doofus, an absolute ding dong, and we just love him to bits. <laughs> so you really <laughs> rescued him too, kind of, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Delilah, my other my other toller, she did come from the same breeder as Tex, but we didn't pay for her. She um had a bone deformity. And so yeah, her leg had been broken accidentally in the whelping box. They thought her mother must have accidentally stepped on her or something. Kind of set strangely or healed strangely. So they didn't want to sell her. So Mm -hmm. they gave her to us because they knew that. We were taller lovers and we already had tags and we'd take good care of her. Mm-hmm. And we certainly did. <laughs> oh, bless. Yeah, these uh, these stories are really uh, touching. It's mm. wonderful when uh, people see past the deformities, they see past the anxiety um, and they do what they can to help these animals. As you say, you know, you can understand why, you know, shelters are so full, they get to breaking point so obviously the animals that are going to be harder to rehome a lot of times they you know sadly do put them down but when you do get them into a home with a lot of love and patience these animals thrive and uh, your stories prove that as well it's it's wonderful to see I mean I've had rescue dogs all my life as well and um, each and every one of them you know, has had problems. I, te- I tend to rescue the down and out. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> they're so worth it in the end. They really are. They are. I couldn't agree more. And it's, it's, all, it's actually my lifelong dream to have a sanctuary for senior and, and hospice care dogs. Oh, I wow. want to take Beautiful. nobody else. Yeah. Um, I could pick husband- that with you, Laura. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that'd be beautiful. And actually I've, I've written about people who have done that kind of work themselves um, in Extraordinary Old Dogs. There's an amazing chapter about a couple up in Brisbane in Queensland here in Australia who run a private sanctuary. They don't accept donations. They don't raise money. They fund it all out of their own pockets. But they take the seniors, they take the ones that nobody else wants and they just love them all their days and it's just so beautiful. beautiful. It's just thinking about it. Yeah, that is so great. Um, well, you spent 20 years writing for newspapers and magazines. Um, what inspired you to start writing books? Was there, was it just something that came naturally? How did, how did you, how did the first book happen? Yeah. Well, I, I had always, always wanted to be a writer, an author. Right. I wanted to write books literally since I can remember. That's all I've ever wanted to do. And I feel very lucky in that way because I know so many people go through their whole lives not knowing what they really want to do. And and it's been part of me since I was a very young child. So I wrote little stories and kind of junior versions of novels and things as a kid. But I started writing Be My Baby, my first novel, when I was in London it was actually inspired by an experience that I had of of becoming a godmother to a friend's child, which right. is, you know, the, the premise of the book. Um, someone mm-hmm. who's very, um, I wouldn't say anti-child, but uh, is is not that fond of ch- children. And and this is the character I'm describing, not myself. Um, <laughs> you know, is quite sure she'll never have children herself. Becomes a godmother to her friend's baby, and then that's where the similarities of my own story actually end because in the book um, the main character ends up having to care for the, the child um, oh. when her mother isn't avail- isn't able to do that, which is not what happened in real life. Um, but that was, that inspired the, the story and, and yeah, it all kind of went from there. Um, but I will stress, I'm not um, someone who doesn't like children. I have three of my own and I like them very much. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, as an author, um, well, the three of us are authors, actually. Um, Yeah. You know, obviously what we write about, it does come from life experiences, but obviously unless you're you're writing your autobiography, um, it will sort of take a form into fiction. So That's right, yeah. Um, You know, the only part of that first book that's real is that uh, my friend had a baby and I became the godmother everything else is pure fiction so yeah well your awards include the twice one dog writers association of america's prestigious uh, rio award um that's amazing tell us a bit about these awards and uh, why it's such an honor and a privilege to have received it or them um sometimes people laugh when i i tell them that there is a dog writers association but um the dwaa is is a long-standing and and wonderful and and quite a you know prestigious organization in its own right um and they do annual awards every year where they celebrate um articles and and blogs and magazines and uh photography and film and and all these creative um expressions of of the love of dogs and one of the categories or several of the categories actually are about books um and the Rio award is is a special award it's not one of the regular uh, categories it's Mm -hmm. a special award that honors the best book 
that celebrates the profound connection between a human and a dog. Um, So I'm, you know, very fortunate to say that my my books have won that award twice. Brilliant. Uh, Yeah, and I I have won. Thank you. I've won and been finalists, been a finalist in other categories as well, but but that one's it. Those two are, are really special, special ones. ones. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And they come with a beautiful, it's called the Maxwell Medallion. Um, oh, and Maxwell, Maxwell mm-hmm. I think, was a dog that belonged to maybe a past president of the association. Um, but, yeah, the, the Rio Award or the category award winners get these Maxwell medallions with a picture of beautiful Maxwell on it and oh, very wow. nice. <laughs> They've got pride of place Lovely. on my show. Brilliant. What an honour. Um, and you then went on and you're now, as you say, recently working in communications for an assistant dogs charity. Yeah. Um, how, how long have you been working with them? How did you, how been, did you decide to uh, work for something like that? To get, to get a quote unquote real job. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've been there about 18 months now. And okay. so I, I stopped, I had my, I left my last full-time journalism job in 2009 and decided to go freelance. Uh, It was something I'd always wanted to try, uh, Mm -hmm. but I was kind of pushed into it because my husband and I signed the mortgage papers for our very first home Uh in the morning. And then I went to work and got made redundant in the afternoon. Oh, no. I immediately became a freelance journalist. (laughs) There you go. Uh, And I spent, oh, 10 years or so writing on a freelance basis for all kinds mm-hmm. of magazines and newspapers and websites, um, writing books as well, juggling the two. Um, then I had my my first daughter and I decided to give away the freelance work and just concentrate on the books, which I love doing and which I did earn a reasonable income from. Yeah. But when you're an author, at least a traditionally published author, you only get paid twice a year when the royalty yeah. checks come in. And I just found it really difficult to make any plans or or budget or, you know, know what I was going to be doing financially. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm very fortunate that my, my husband works full time as well. And, and so we could cover the mortgage and things out of his salary. But I just got to the point where I got tired of that uncertainty. And I just wanted to know that I had a regular income and I could put money towards the things that I care about. So I started looking for part-time work. I found a few and applied for a few jobs and they never really went anywhere. And then I saw this um, Assistance Dogs Australia advertising for a media and communications manager. And I just thought, oh my goodness, you know, this this is paid for me. So yeah, I've been there about 18 months now and I absolutely love it. I've never loved a job more than this the people are incredible the work that we do mm-hmm. it changes lives it really does and um what's great about working there is that everybody keeps that in mind all the time mm-hmm. um they're a really wonderful passionate bunch of people who always have our clients uh, at the center of everything we do and of course we work in an office that's full of dogs. So it's <laughs> always wonderful as well. You know, if you're having a hard day or you need a break, we just pop down to the kennels and have some Labrador cuddles and then we're rejuvenated and, and ready to get back to it. <laughs> yeah, which is really, really wonderful. 
I know Dragger yeah. was um, going to be a service dog for canine companions and, uh, and, and going there, you know, everyone has, the, has a dog in their office. Yeah. You know? It's incredible. I yeah, love it. There's so no much. doors. There's just gates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it's like in ours too. And, you know, interestingly, um, the founders of Assistance Dogs Australia are a couple called Robert and Hanny Biggs. And they were inspired to start ADA after visiting Canine Companions in the States. Um, oh, how wonderful. Yeah, in the late 90s, um, they went over there and, and saw the incredible work that Canine Companions are doing. Mm-hmm. And literally on the plane, on the back, on the way back to Australia, Hanny turned to Bob and said, we have to do this. We, oh, we must do this in Australia. So, yeah, yeah we First assistance dogs charity in Australia. I mean, obviously guide dogs were already there, but in terms of using assistance dogs to help people with physical disabilities, which was the only program that ADA had when it was founded, and we've since expanded into PTSD, autism. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we have education support dogs, we have facility dogs in prisons and courts. So, you know, we're constantly learning about the capacity that these wonderful dogs have mm-hmm. uh, for helping people. And that en- enables us to expand our programs. And, and as I like to say, place more extraordinary dogs with extraordinary people. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's, that's the whole key behind, yeah. behind everything. And um, I know I got involved with canine companions because I, I was looking into doing something at a, at a rescue for as a painting so that they could donate my work of art at a fundraiser of some sort. And, um, and it turned out where I, I, I got involved because of the dogs, but Mm -hmm. I really learned that it was because of the people that I met along my journey. And we're all one big family uh, Mm -hmm. in canine companions. They were, they um, were, you know, started in 1975 um, in Santa Rosa, California. And I don't know if you know, but Charles Schultz, the um, uh, uh, Charles Schultz, the Peanuts. Yeah, Snoopy. Snoopy, yeah, Snoopy yeah. and the Peanuts. He was one of the original um, founders of Canine Companions. He and oh, his wife, Jean Schultz. And Jean Schultz is still on the board. Um, she's quite old now, but she's still on the board of directors. And um, so it's it's really a wonderful organization. And uh, and and I and I'm sure that um, uh, uh, with your dogs, where mm. you, you know your your organization, that they give them to the to the clients for free. We uh, do, yes, and yeah. that's what we yeah that that's why we fundraise all the time. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm sure you do too. Um, and that's we why should. your job, you have your job. <laughs> yep, that's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, no, they're just incredible. And um, I feel very fortunate to work there. I, you know, it's really a perfect job for me. So uh, mm-hmm. I'm still writing, obviously, and doing a, a million other things as well. But um, yeah, I really, I love my three days a week working for ADA. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, it, it, then... But you, you won, and you were named actually the 2023 Churchill Fellow. Mm-hmm. Um, that must have been so thrilling. 
It was, yeah. So I'm not the only one. Um, there's about a hundred of us Australia wide. Um, so for people who aren't aware, the Churchill Fellowship is something that uh, is administered by the Winston Churchill Trust, um, as the name suggests, a trust that was established in memory of Winston Churchill. Um, and every year they award a number of fellowships which allow Australians to go overseas to research a project or an issue that they're passionate about that has the potential to benefit the Australian community. So it's really incredible in that it doesn't, your project doesn't have to be aligned with your profession um, or your academic qualifications or anything like that. It can just be something that you are absolutely obsessed with, in my case, very passionate <laughs> about that you know has the potential to make Australia that little bit better. So for me, my fellowship is looking at the use of therapy dogs or animal-assisted therapy specifically for children in foster care. Um, oh, oh, how beautiful. Oh. Yeah, that has come about because, um, as I mentioned, I've got three kids. Two of those are in permanent foster care with me and my husband. Oh, and bless obviously- you. Oh, thank you. They're amazing. They, they're such great little kids. So we're, we're very lucky to have them as okay. part of our family. And I just have become, you know, through that experience, have become very passionate about ensuring positive outcomes for kids in care mm-hmm. because they have uh, demonstrably poorer outcomes than children yeah. that have never experienced the care system. You know, the the incidence of anxiety and depression and PTSD is considerably higher. They're more likely to engage with the justice system. They're more likely to have drug and alcohol issues. They're more likely to go to prison. They're more likely to go back to prison. Um, mm. This is true even for children who, like mine, have been in stable, loving placements their whole lives. And I just thought, that's unacceptable. <laughs> Um, you know in Australia there's about 46,000 children in foster care Um, in America you have almost half a million children in foster care Um, but actually per capita the number of kids in care is actually similar because Australia has a population of 25 million the states has a population of I believe 300 or so million Um, so proportionally it's a similar uh, figure um, and in Australia, as in America, Indigenous children are vastly overrepresented in the care system. Both of my children are First Nations Australian, so they have um, even poorer outcomes than other mm-hmm. children in mm-hmm. care. Mm-hmm. And I just thought there must be something that can be done. And and through my lifelong experience with dogs and through all the wonderful dogs and dog owners that I've come to know and call my friends through my books – And of course, through my work with Assistance Dogs Australia, it seems so obvious to me that dogs can help. Um, You know, if if for no other reason, then dogs are consistent. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that's a real issue for kids in care is that their lives are very unpredictable. There's a real lack of consistency. Um, You know, they're changing placements quite often or they might go back to their family of origin only to then come back into the care system later. And again, as I mentioned earlier, even kids like mine who have come into care young have will only ever have this one 
placement until they're adults, even they experience that real lack of consistency because their social workers change all the time and the people that supervise their visits change every time and sometimes their birth parents are really present in their lives and sometimes they're not. So even for them, there's real challenges around consistency. But dogs are always the same. You yes. know, yes. they don't have bad days. They, they, they're mm-hmm. always happy to see you. They don't judge. They want to be by your side. They just want they're to love good listeners. Hundred um, percent. You know that's why we see all these amazing programs now where children read to dogs as a way of, of boosting their literacy. Um, so that's a rather long-winded way of kind of <laughs> explaining how I came to this conclusion that that dogs and kids in care would be a perfect match. And then I started looking for animal-assisted therapy programs for kids in care. And there mm-hmm. just aren't any in Australia. Um, there are the odd psychologist or, or child therapist that might have a therapy dog or that might use a dog in some way um, in therapy, but there's no program specifically for children in foster care. And those kids are different. They have unique needs mm-hmm. and they need unique solutions. Um, you know, obviously any child that's experienced trauma is a tragedy, but a child that has, for example, lost a parent to illness or survived a house fire or something like that is very, very different to the trauma that comes from being in the out-of-home care system. So different solutions, specific solutions are required. And when I found that there were no programs um, in Australia, I started looking further afield and realised that there's lots of programs uh, specifically matching kids and dogs, foster kids and dogs in the States. And I thought, okay, great. I'll go to America and figure out how they do it. But how am I going to do that? You know, <laughs> and that's why, you know, miraculously or serendipitously, that's when I heard about the Churchill Fellowship um, and applied and was very fortunate to be selected through after a very rigorous and nerve-wracking <laughs> selection <laughs> process. Wow. Um, yeah, so I'll be coming to the US around November, December 2024 spending five or six weeks going coast to coast, meeting with um, organisations that help kids in care, organisations that um, facilitate therapy dog programs and everyone in between. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> Let me know when you come. Let I will. You, please, please, because we'll hook up and I'll I'll take you out to the Northeast Regional Headquarters of Canine Companions and you can get a chance to see that state-of-the-art facility out there and and get a chance to meet all of the great people. Um, much like, much, much, much like what you've got there in Australia. Um, yeah. Um, they used, if they used Canine Companions as their, as their, paradigm you know um and um uh i'm sure it's very much like like that you know but um that's um, wonderful um but you you said that you've written romantic comedy novels you mentioned Mm -hmm. you just touched on it at the beginning of our conversation um and what i what we wanted to know was what what inspired you to write comedy novels? Very, mm-hmm. very different than dogs. 
Oh, very different. Um, well, I am a diehard romance reader. I absolutely love romance novels. Get that. Could you try again? I... Oh, sorry. Um, I we you we lost you for a minute there. Oh, I'm sorry. That's um, a... sure. I absolutely love romance novels. Um, my grandmother was always reading Mills and Boons, and I used to take them and sneak and you know read the juicy bits. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, you know, I'm I'm a child of the 80s and 90s when so many of the classic rom-com films were made. Yeah. You know, When Harry Met Sally is my all-time favourite movie. And One so I just really, yeah, it's so it's good. Writing is, is just so perfect. And um, I just love those kinds of books. And so when I got this idea about, you know, the, the, the godmother who finds herself caring for her goddaughter, it just really lent itself to that kind of genre because obviously being being a character that's clueless about children she had all kinds of hilarious mishaps and hijinks trying mm -hmm. to look after this baby and then um my second romance uh, rom-com is called the x factor that's about a dog trainer who falls in love with the most famous movie star in the world mm -hmm. um and then my third one is called two weeks till christmas and it's about two rural vets who fall in love wow. Oh, yeah. So That's I just so nice. I love those kinds of books. Um, I love I love comedy. You know, I try to be funny. I try to make people laugh, <laughs> and um, it's just they're just a joy to write. They really are. Yeah. Well, my my book list for next year is just uh, growing. <laughs> <laughs> All my book books are available online. So there you go. <laughs> Perfect. Well, I'll, 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 I'll be I'll be looking them up. I'll be looking yeah. them up. <laughs> <laughs> well living in the beautiful blue mountains of Australia what is a day in your life like oh my goodness chaos is is one word to describe it <laughs> <laughs> well with three young kids yeah so my, my kids are one four and nine oh, uh, nine-year-old is going to be 10 in a couple of weeks wow. so there's wow. lots of running around to school and to daycare and you know, just being their taxi and their social coordinator, they have a better social life than I do. <laughs> and then, Children uh, usually do. Yeah, and then squeezing in three days work every week as well. I'm also doing a PhD at the moment. Wow. Um, I try to carve out a little bit of time somewhere along the line to work on that. Um, then spending time with my husband and the dogs and, you know, every day looks very different yeah. And also because the kids are so young and at daycare, we're constantly plagued by viruses. So there oh, always no. is somebody unwell. So it is a real juggling act, to be honest. Um, I would love to be one of those writers who's like, you know, I get up and I do my yoga and my meditation and then I write for two hours and then I ride my pony, and, you know, like <laughs> I, just, I also I have. How do you do that like, though in reality? Oh, I don't know, but. But even if I had the time and the space to do that, I've got ADHD, so I do actually find it quite hard to focus on things a lot of the time. So, right. yeah, I'm. People often ask me, "What's your process?" And I'm, I'm always. I feel that I'm really disappointing people when I say I don't have one. I'm just getting by by the skin of my teeth. <laughs> you know, that's that's kind of refreshing in a way. Yeah, it is because, <laughs> because when you hear someone that has a definite disciplined schedule every mm -hmm. day 
that's so boring. It's almost <laughs> like, oh boy. But when you when you speak with someone who says it's serendipitous, every day is is just different. And you know, I have to fit things in and I'm juggling three children, a husband, a guinea pig, and and dogs, you know, it's it's a lot. It's a lot. And and it, it is refreshing. It kind of makes you feel like, well, I can, you know, I can relate to that. Yeah. It's more normal than anything else, really, to be honest. You know, um, you don't want to live a perfect life. You know, it's. No. And I, you know, you see these things where people say, oh, we, you have the same 24 hours that Beyonce has. And it's like, no, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Beyonce is a multimillionaire who has assistants and nannies and a personal chef. And, you know, it's such a privileged viewpoint, you know, we're not we can't all just go out there and spend six hours a day or eight hours a day writing uninterrupted. It's just not realistic. And I, yeah, I I find that rhetoric really quite privileged and ableist and um, people should be more honest about what it's really like. I think it is a trouble. Well, I mean, things like uh, social media now, everybody sort of tries to show their perfect little life. The reality is it's perfect little life on Instagram or Facebook, but what actually goes on behind the scenes is not what's shown. So people are sort of forced into this belief that everybody's leading these perfect little lives and they're not. Not the case. Writing is hard. People don't understand the being an author and writing it's not easy don't just sit down and out comes the book it takes a lot of work it really does and you know I always say it's not like I'm down a coal mine or or a frontline worker in a global pandemic yeah. uh, mm-hmm. but it is hard in, in its own way it's it's taxing um and it does require quiet and uninterrupted time mm-hmm. at least it does for me I, I know I do know lots of wonderful authors that can write in five minute snatches wherever they can find them but I'm not one of them I do need quiet and, and space and and not to be interrupted every two seconds by my children um yeah and I just I try to be open about that and you know on my own Instagram I do I do love Instagram yeah. but you know, I'm very open on there about the fact that I have anxiety and, you know, I have some health challenges and people actually do message me and say, it's so nice to see someone talking about that kind of stuff and, and being open with it. And I just refuse to engage with stigma around yeah. any of those issues. Mm-hmm. You know, life is chaos. It's it's happy, joyful chaos. And mm-hmm. I recognize that I'm a middle-class white woman and I'm in a position of privilege but I still have challenges and and I'm never going to shy away from being honest about those yeah yeah no, it's very important for uh, people to see that because as you say uh, other people reach out um and you become a lifeline yeah. for a lot of people who realize that you know you're going through similar issues to what they have or they can relate to what you're going through and it's just nice to have somebody out there who's yeah. Hey, you know, I'm going through this. I deal with this every day. You know, it, it, yeah. that, that's that's right. reality. The rest of it, the you know, the being perfect. I know. Oh, that's, 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 
romantic fantasy, you know, of what a perfect life is like. And, and that someone who's, who's as successful as you are, um, having the same problems that everyone else does, that it makes you, makes you feel like, wow, you know, maybe I can, maybe if I really, really try, I can, I can write and win an award, you know, and fit this in and, and know that, that life isn't perfect. Yeah, exactly. And Um, I think social media fairly in some cases cops a lot of flack for being mm -hmm. a bit of a a cesspit, (laughs) but (laughs) I don't think we talk enough about the fact that it can actually be really beautiful as well. And it can help people feel less alone and, it can create communities. I mean, I've got genuine friends that I've made through social media mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. some of them I've never met in person, but some of them I have met in person and, you know, we've become true friends and and that wouldn't have happened if not for Instagram or Twitter or whatever. So there are positive aspects to it as well. Yeah, Definitely. and I know we noticed that you enjoy trying different things, Laura. <laughs> Yes. And, that's and the ADHD which again. Is, which is <laughs> no, which which is really it, it's delightful because, I mean, the supermarket beauty queen. Oh yes, <laughs> <laughs> it's another one of my Instagram accounts because I love fashion. I love clothes. You know, as you can see, I'm well. Obviously, your listeners can't see, but you can see I'm literally sitting inside my closet right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's Um, very very colorful (laughs) yeah I love color um so I started supermarket beauty queen just as a place to to post my outfits and things and it's just a bit of fun really it's so fun (laughs) it's so fun and it's 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 a it's a way it just makes makes your life seem to me anyway to be very serendipitous and um but what I what I'm interested in knowing is is you you have this s- section that you you talk about burlesque and you, oh. you dress you the it's beautiful I had to oh, tell you that you. it's just beautiful thank um, you why I mean what inspires you where do you get your creative prowess to do things like this that just so great <laughs> the viewer <laughs> I mean you know I've jokingly said it's ADHD but that's probably quite true that is part of you know having a neuro neurodivergent brain that um I'm always flitting from one source of dopamine to the next <laughs> and I just I've always said I want to experience everything I can in life. I never want to close myself off to something that might be fun or interesting or that might expand my horizons or help me learn more about myself and about other people. So I will just try anything that kind of takes my fancy. And I think probably part of me is looking for the thing. You know, I I know a lot of people that have hobbies that they lifelong hobbies. I mean, you know, I look at my own mum. She she's always loved sewing and dressmaking, and she she's made beautiful things, and she's been that way her whole life. And I'm looking for that thing that will sustain me. But whether it's the way my brain is wired or or some other aspect of my personality, 
I've yet to find the thing. And I used to get really frustrated about the fact that I would constantly hop from one thing to the next until a friend of mine, Michelle, said, your hobby is having hobbies. And I thought, oh, that's right. <laughs> that is really oh, cool. Wow. Yeah. And that made me feel so much better about it. So now I I, I kind of revel in it. I, there's mm-hmm. no shame around, oh, I bought all the supplies to do that thing and two weeks later I have no interest in it anymore, you know. Now I'm like, that's okay. I tried it and it, it wasn't the thing. So I'll just move on and find the next thing. Um, but anything creative is a real, um, has a real pull for me. Is that what um, life is all about though? I think yeah. so. I really do. I, 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 I think that's what life is all about, trying things. And and if you don't like them, move on to, to something else, you know. Um, yeah. I know that every day is a learning experience. Every day it's a way of us to be able to create and and be inspired by people like yourselves. Um, both you and Anna have inspired inspire me every day. Um well. With, lovely <laughs> and we're we're in different corners of the world and here we are inspiring each other and talking to each other about our lives and and what what it's like you know um but mm-hmm. we have one one final question to ask you okay um okay this is it if you were <laughs> an, <laughs> if you were an animal what animal would you be and why well, I mean, that's a no-brainer. I would be a dog, but not any dog. I would be one of my dogs <laughs> because my dogs have a such a sweet life. <laughs> um, you know, they are loved beyond measure. They are pampered to within an inch of their lives. They get to come with us on holidays. They live in this incredible 27,000 square kilometer national park. Wow. Uh, wow. Not to go in the national park because dogs aren't allowed in national parks, but there are wonderful fire trails and little hidden corners that that aren't actually in the park but still allow them to get out there and, and roam through the bush and explore. And, I mean, I look at them sometimes and I even say to them sometimes, you guys don't even know. <laughs> you don't know how good you've got it. And they just look at me like, yeah, yeah, get us another treat. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The be all end all of life, isn't it? For That's a dog. Exactly it. <laughs> oh, well, thank you uh, for joining us for another inspirational episode of Howling Talent. Do check out our website, howlingtalent.com, and engage with us with your comments. Laura, it's been wonderful speaking with you. Thank you so much. And we definitely need you to come back and tell us how you get on in the uh, States and uh, how your uh, program develops. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. I would love, love to that. Have you on. We'd love to have you on again when, when, that, when you do have all of that together and we can, maybe we could do it together. <laughs> oh, that would be incredible. Here in the States. Um, the plan is very much to bring back my learnings and, and start my own program here. So it would be my absolute pleasure to, to come back and talk to you about it. Thank you Wonderful. so much for having me. You're welcome. Um, Thank you. Absolute pleasure. So until next time, everyone, take care.